what do you do when the people who occupy your moral center have been dis disgraced or have been proven to be unworthy of that? <laughs> but equally important in my perspective is also the need to have reminders. What are you going to do to also make sure that the history is not lost? What's one thing you wish everybody knew? I'm your host and producer, Dexter Thomas. And that's the question I'm here to ask in If Everybody Knew, a new podcast from the Humanities Council at Princeton. Every episode, I talk to artists, journalists, and scholars from Princeton and beyond to get into the research, the ideas, and the untold stories that could change the world, or at least maybe just the way you look at things. So a little bit of a warning here. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about some pretty unpleasant things. Racism, war, child soldiers, sexual violence. I'll try not to get too graphic, but I just wanted to say that up front. That said, I'm also going to be talking about some more mundane stuff, like car tires, radio shows, and libraries. Those two categories probably don't sound like they go together, but it'll make sense in a second. Let's start with that last one, the library. Princeton University is home to the Harvey S. Firestone Memorial Library, one of the largest libraries in the country. It's a mandatory stop on any tour of campus, and it is absolutely gorgeous. Multiple floors, millions of volumes, and the official website boasts that it has the largest book-to-student ratio in America. They also have priceless collections, like Toni Morrison's early drafts of her novels and the original autographed manuscript of The Great Gatsby. It was even a major plot point in a John Grisham novel that came out a few years back. Michelle Obama has posted a picture of herself in front of Firestone. Suffice to say that if libraries could be celebrities, the Firestone would absolutely be A-list. Now, as you were listening to that, you might have had one or two reactions. The first one would be, oh, cool, big library, sounds nice. The other reaction you might have, and this is more likely if you're African, especially if you're West African, is, wait, Firestone? As in, that Firestone? And you wouldn't be saying that because of the tires, not that you'd be wrong, because yes, that is the same Firestone. You'd be saying that because, well, Firestone has a pretty rough history in West Africa. The fact that a rubber production enterprise of international significance exists in Liberia today is the result of the vision and courage of a prominent American who in the early 1920s became convinced that Americans should produce their own rubber to safeguard American consumers from the tyrannies of alien rubber cartels. This industrial pioneer was Harvey S. Firestone, founder of the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company. Firestone was founded by Harvey S. Firestone in Akron, Ohio in 1900. The company grew quickly, and within a few years, they became the official supplier to Henry Ford's automobile company. But there was a problem. Harvesting rubber requires a very particular climate, and it won't grow well in the US. So Firestone needed to find another place. They settled on Liberia, a young country in West Africa that had been founded in 1822, largely by formerly enslaved African Americans. At this point in the 1920s, the Liberian government was in a lot of debt, especially to Great Britain. For Firestone, this presented a great opportunity. Here was a country that not only had the right climate, but was in desperate need of money. So in 1926, they struck a deal with the government of Liberia. Firestone would get 1 million acres for a 99-year lease for the price of 6 cents per acre. And if that sounds like a low price, 
It is, even in 1920s money. But that wasn't it. They were also getting workers, whether the workers wanted to be there or not. And one of the parts of the agreement was that there was a quota system. Various districts in the interior were required to send a certain number of men each year to work on the plantations. That's Greg Mittman. He's a professor at the University of Wisconsin, and he recently published a book called Empire of Rubber about Firestone's early days in Liberia. It details how grueling the work of tapping latex from rubber trees was. Workers used harsh chemicals that made their hands go numb and occasionally caused blindness. And Mittman says that the way these workers were treated would be ironically familiar in a country founded by people who had escaped American slavery. Now, once they got there, they were paid. But, you know, I've talked to some laborers whose fathers started on the plantations in the 20s. And, you know, they said they went there by by force, that they didn't go there voluntarily. Some some of the workers will say that, you know, my my dad was a slave, you know. They actually use that word. Jeez. Yeah. Firestone could basically, you know, plead ignorance in this. People are showing up, whether they're coming voluntarily, whether they're coming um, because they, you know, were forced. But Firestone, you know, was clearly behind this and it blew up into a big international scandal. And this is where the NAACP and the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom launch a, a publicity campaign against Firestone and a League of Nations investigation into forced labor and slavery. But that system existed up until the early 1960s. The investigation itself ended in 1931. Firestone managed to escape any real consequences. There was some increased scrutiny on them, but their policies didn't change much. Back in the home factory in Ohio, black people weren't even allowed to work in the factory until the 1950s. And in Liberia, things were even worse. So bad that workers went on strike. Twice. So the first strike that happens on the plantations is in 1950. During this time, the the Firestone plantations in Liberia were the most uh, profitable subsidiary of the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company. And at the time that the strike happened, tappers were making 18 cents per day. So it was below uh, Liberian wage law. In 1963, the most massive strike on the plantations happened. Mm -hmm. All the divisions on the plantations are set down for two weeks. People that were, uh, you know, living in Firestone Worker Housing, you know, were part of that strike, say that trucks would come in and they said, you know, if you're part of the strike, we're, we're moving you because you can't be on the man's land if you're not working for the man. Um, and so people were, you know, physically removed. They took them out they, of their houses. They removed them from their homes. Yes. We know that it turned violent. Um, it's likely that some people were killed. Um, I, you say, so you say that it's likely, why, why are you, why do you have that caveat on it? <laughs> that, the, the reason I have that caveat is because, um, in writing this book, I was never allowed access to the Firestone archives, which for many decades existed at the university of Akron. So they existed at a public university, but, 
uh, yet uh, they've, they've never been available to the public. And there is likely a lot of documents in that archive that are important, not only to the history of Firestone in the United States, but also to the history of Liberia. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. The Firestone Tire and Rubber Company, now in its 50th year of serving the public, and the nationwide network of Firestone dealers and stores, present the Voice of Firestone, which is being broadcast simultaneously on regular radio, FM, and television. Firestone knew that things like accusations of slavery or news about violently putting down a strike could generate some bad PR for them. So they made sure to get out in public and tell their side of the story. Sometimes it was subtle, like the voice of Firestone. This program ran from the 20s through the 60s, and it gave Firestone an opportunity to present themselves to Americans as patrons of the fine arts. This evening you will hear your favorite music played by the Firestone Orchestra under the direction of the distinguished American conductor Howard Barlow, and by Elizabeth Firestone, pianist, and sung by the soprano... But sometimes they were more direct, like in their series of promotional documentaries. Nowadays, we'd probably call this sort of thing branded content. This one is from the late 40s. It has always been the desire of Firestone to contribute to the social and human, as well as the economic progress of Liberia. Over the years, Firestone has established free schools, modern hospitals, um, and well What was life like in Liberia for, for an American who was there compared to somebody who was actually from Liberia? Life was pretty posh for a white planter in Liberia. And, and just another point to bring out here is that well until 1963, no Liberian ever had a position in the management structure of the Firestone Plantations Company. Really? Basically, the plantations were a Jim Crow enclave on sovereign African soil. 125 white managers oversaw a Liberian workforce of approximately 30,000. Wow. White managers were giving two-story houses, very beautifully built, always located on top of a hill. So it's kind of like the big house overlooking the, the plantation. Yeah, this is all uh, sounding very Southern plantation Yes, to me. Yeah. And there is a kind of Southern plantation even style of the house. So, and then on the, on the top floor were the living quarters for the white planters and families. And, and below was where Liberian servants lived. There was an exclusive Firestone staff club, which was whites only, um, which included a golf course. Um, you know, it was the social hub of the white plantation management. They had tennis. I'm sorry, you, whites only. Whites only. In Liberia. In Liberia. In Africa. In Africa. Africa may be the last place where one would expect to find a golf course. But this one on the Firestone Plantations has been enjoyed by thousands of American travelers and servicemen who have passed through Liberia. Its popularity proves that golf is a good game anywhere. you were a, a worker, a, you know, a Liberian worker, no, you would not be allowed access. It's so egregious that in 1958, the Liberian legislature passes 
an anti-segregation law to prevent Jim Crow on, on the plantations because it was a segregated school system. White management sent their kids to a different school than Liberian laborers, for example. It was a segregated healthcare system as well. Firestone, you know, basically exported Jim Crow policies to Liberia. And increasingly during the 1950s with the rise of the civil rights movement in the United States and liberation movements throughout Africa, um, Firestone in Liberia becomes a real embarrassment to the U.S. State Department. And they push on uh, Firestone to clean up its act. All the more reason for Firestone to make an appeal to the American people that Firestone was in Liberia to help, and that without Firestone, Liberians wouldn't be nearly as productive or healthy. Much of Liberia's progress in medicine and public health is due to the industrial statesmanship of Harvey S. Firestone, founder, and Harvey S. Firestone, Jr., now head of the worldwide Firestone Organization. A gift from that organization enables the American Foundation for Tropical Medicine to establish in Liberia a permanent research center for service to tropical medicine generally. This Liberia Institute was a milestone in tropical medicine. World famous medical authorities... So the tricky thing here is that everything that narrator just said is mostly true, technically. Firestone did provide health care for its workers, even though it was routinely accused of providing worse care to Liberians than to the white American overseers. We can't say that everything Firestone did in Liberia was universally bad. It's a lot more complicated than that. But one thing for sure is that they weren't telling the whole story about their medical program. You know, the the dark side of the medical humanitarianism and, you know, the plantations became a valuable resource for American biomedical researchers because you had this essentially captive workforce. You know, there were questionable experiments done on Liberian subjects, on workers. One of the projects that they were doing was purposely infecting Liberians with a strain of malaria that doesn't exist in Liberia to see if Black people had a kind of innate racial immunity to this other form of of malaria. The complete disregard of rights of Liberian subjects in this and that they could just be seen as an experimental population is, is very, very disconcerting. So just to recap, accusations of slavery starting in the 20s, importing Jim Crow that got so bad that the Liberian government had to outlaw it in the 1950s. And we haven't even mentioned the environmental impact that clearing out the forest and dumping chemicals in the river systems has caused, including allegations that the water is making people sick. And add to that, reports of violent worker suppression, allowing for unethical medical experimentation, and refusing to let anyone see the records up until the present day. So it makes sense that some West Africans are a little surprised when they first visit Princeton and they see the library. So we've heard a lot about Liberia here. Now, I think we should hear some more about Princeton. After Harvey Firestone Sr. died in 1938, the family put a lot of work into memorializing him. They erected a massive bronze statue in Liberia. They also donated a lot of money for a library to be built in Firestone's name. Harvey Firestone Sr. had sent all five of his sons to Princeton, and this was an important school in their family image. 
The Firestone Library was completed in 1948. One way to look at this is as a purely philanthropic act. Another way is as yet another part of their public image. Whatever the motivation, one thing is obvious. Or rather, one thing is not obvious, at least to people at Princeton. How that big library even got there. There's no signs about the connection to Liberia on the outside of the building, or on the inside, or even on the library's website. You could spend your four years at Princeton pulling constant late nights in the Firestone Library and have no idea about where the money to build the place came from. But maybe it's not too shocking that people weren't talking about Firestone in the 50s or the 60s. What's weird is that nobody on campus seemed to bat an eye as the country that helped fund that library plunged into civil war. It's the latest high-profile war crimes tribunal. Charles Taylor. Former president of Liberia, Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor, one of Africa's most notorious warlords. 11 counts of crimes against humanity uh, on war crimes. So those counts ranging uh, from murder to rape to pillage to the enlistment to enrollment of child soldiers, boys under the age of 15. His misrule uh, reached across borders and affected so many hundreds of thousands of people. Many of the victims had hands or feet cut off. What message is Charles Taylor's trial sending out? And is it the beginning of the end of impunity in Africa? In 2005, the Liberian Charles Taylor was found guilty of a range of war crimes. He launched an uprising to overthrow the Liberian government in 1989. And this set off a civil war that officially lasted until 1997, when he got himself elected president on the promise that the bloodshed would stop. It didn't. Charles Taylor used an army that included child soldiers, who were called the Small Boys Unit. They were given drugs to make them more fearless on the battlefield. If they were too young to carry rifles, they were given grenades. That conflict also spilled over to nearby Guinea and Sierra Leone, where blood diamonds entered the picture. When Charles Taylor's forces first started to rise to power, Firestone evacuated their American employees. Their Liberian workers were left to fend for themselves. Then Firestone came back to Liberia to do business. PBS Frontline did an entire documentary on this period. I'll leave the link to it in the show notes, but the gist is that Firestone agreed to recognize Charles Taylor's rebel government and pay taxes directly to him. They allowed him to host his rebel fighters on the plantation as he planned his invasions, and Charles Taylor allowed Firestone to keep doing business and making money in Liberia. In the documentary, some Firestone officials argued that they didn't know the extent of what was happening or how bad Charles Taylor would get. But a lot of people say that Firestone was complicit in the roughly quarter of a million deaths that happened in the West African region during that era. Charles Taylor created destruction, not just in Liberia, but he was, had this capacity to spread it across the borders. So there isn't a single West African country not affected by his policies. That's Professor Simon Gakandi. He's the person whose voice you heard in the very beginning of the episode. He was born in Kenya, and he's the chair of the English department at Princeton. He's been on campus since 2004. At no point do I remember us saying, well, Charles Taylor, Princeton, and Firestone are connected one way or the other. Um, because... We are not good at making those connections. I always 
uh, talk about what cultural historians and cultural scholars would call the political unconscious, that mm. we know it's there, but and it's driving these things, but we don't want to interfere. Princeton needs the Firestones because the American university system is funded by these corporations. And I have uh, written a lot about that connection between money that's usually made in conditions of slavery or forced labor and how that money is kind of laundered by being redirected to uh, educational institutions, philanthropic institutions, and and, and so on. Uh, So in in that case, this is a familiar story to me. But it's not a familiar story to most Princeton students. Now, we can't say that Liberia has never been talked about on campus. But one way for getting a feel for what people think is important is by reading a campus newspaper. Even if professors or administration aren't talking about stuff, students do. And that stuff usually shows up in the paper. And as it happens, there's an online database of Princeton's main campus newspaper that contains every issue going back from 1876 until today. And through all those issues, there's almost no mention of Liberia, ever. Or there wasn't until 2017, when this first-year student joined the staff. Hello, everybody. My name is John Ort. I am a 2021 graduate from Princeton, where I majored in history. Um, And in addition to being a history major, I served as editor-in-chief of the Daily Princetonian, which is uh, Princeton's independent daily student newspaper. John grew up in the suburbs of Denver, Colorado. In high school, he happened to read a book about African history, and there was a mention of Firestone in Liberia. He mostly forgot about it, until he got to Princeton and saw the library. None of his classmates seemed to know anything about this connection. So, when he got his newspaper gig, he figured he'd write an article. Actually, he wrote two. You know, it's, it's, it's not in any way as if I, quote-unquote, discovered Firestone's record, right? I think that's well-documented. Historians have have done that work, um, and in particular, Liberian historians, people living in Liberia. What I was coming to see was the ways in which Harvey Firestone and the Firestone Company uh, had flown under the radar, so to speak, in insofar that there, there didn't seem to be um, conversation on Princeton's campus about the ways in which Firestone's use of coerced and enslaved labor in Liberia profited Princeton. The library was was finishing this massive decade-long renovation project, and there was publicity on campus about the beautiful new study spaces that were opening, um, how modern the library was. And I was arguing that because the library was trumpeting itself as, as this modern research institution, that moment called for more honesty and disclosure and response uh, to the Firestone connections. The first one he wrote during his freshman year in 2017. It didn't really make any waves. But when he wrote about Firestone again in 2019, people started noticing and talking. I think there was, in some of the responses I heard, or there was some conversation on Twitter, people saying, well, um, would this be another instance of, of returning to a figure who's lionized on campus, but whose legacy and lifetime warrant scrutiny and need serious consideration. Now, if you go to Princeton, you know exactly what figure he's talking about here. He's talking about Woodrow Wilson. 
For context, we got to go back a couple years before John even got to campus, back in 2015. This is when a small group of student activists called the Black Justice League released a list of demands, including cultural competency courses for students and staff. But the demand that got the most attention was the one about Woodrow Wilson, who is not only on record saying some pretty awful things about black people, but also enacting policies that actively harmed minorities in America. The Black Justice League said that Woodrow Wilson's name should be removed from buildings on campus. Again, this is THE Woodrow Wilson, not only a former president of Princeton, but the 28th president of the United States. Now, as you can imagine, a lot of people were not comfortable with this, both on and off campus. Senator Ted Cruz, who is a Princeton graduate himself, called supporters of a name change pampered teenagers. But other people thought that a name change was a good idea, and they circulated a petition in support of it, and thus started a long process in which the administration asked for input from the public and from various historians. Then, in 2016, the Board of Trustees announced their decision. The Wilson name would stay. Officially, the discussion was now over. But that didn't mean the debate on campus had stopped. And without quite realizing it at first, John had walked right into the middle of it. I think the Black Justice League's protests, which had been uh, two or three years prior when I started at Princeton, were on my mind. And I, I think for myself, it took time to, to appreciate the Black Justice League's contributions. I, I don't think I'd necessarily um, have the perspective that I have now. And I was aware of recent conversations at Princeton um, and when the piece was published, it, it became apparent the ways in which Firestone perhaps fit within them. John's recommendations in his article were pretty simple. He suggested that Princeton release any documents they had about financial or other ties to Firestone. And in the meantime, maybe put an exhibit in the library that could give some historical context. Neither one of these happened, but people started talking. Students and even professors started to contact John privately telling them that they'd had no idea about this history. And at protests on campus, people started mentioning Firestone. And then, during John's junior year, something unexpected happened. Princeton and Woodrow Wilson were in the news again. Princeton University announced on Saturday that it will remove former U.S. President Woodrow Wilson's name from its public policy school. One of Princeton's residential colleges, formerly known as Wilson College, will also get a name change. The decision comes after the university president and board cited Wilson's, quote, racist thinking and policies throughout his presidency from 1913 to 1921. From the outside, it looked like the Princeton administration had just made this decision on their own overnight. But I've talked to a bunch of student journalists and people who were on campus at the time, and a lot of people are a little annoyed about that because there wasn't any real acknowledgement of the criticism that activists had faced or the fact that it took a good five years and the shift of public opinion after the death of George Floyd for Princeton to catch up. Now, that's not to say that everyone was on board. Later that same year, one Princeton professor called the Black Justice League a terrorist organization. But overall, it was starting to look like things were changing at Princeton. A few weeks after the Woodrow Wilson announcement, a group of Princeton faculty released an open letter with a long list of more demands. And in the letter, they brought up Firestone. They quoted John's article, and almost verbatim, they repeated his recommendations, fully disclose any ties to the Firestone company, and maybe put some sort of marker in the library that acknowledges Firestone's history in Liberia. But again, 
neither one of those happened. As a matter of fact, the conversation about Firestone itself seemed to be fading into the background, while the Woodrow Wilson news stayed on center stage. In the middle of 2020, as you know, um, it looked as though America, and I, I suppose the world, was, was having starting to begin to have some more serious and more urgent conversations about racism. Yes. Firestone didn't seem to come up. Do you have any sense of why that is? I have to agree with you that Firestone did not come up in 2020. And I was surprised because I thought that given all the things we were discussing, not only at Princeton, but in the United States and globally, that if one were looking for one example closer to home, Firestone would come up immediately. Mm -hmm. It didn't. Um, and I have some thoughts about why it didn't come up. One has to do with something that worries me, the limitation of these conversations to the United States. Uh, these are global movements, and they've always been. Uh, if you think about movements for black justice in the 1890s all the way to the 1960s, they were always global. But... Uh, what seemed to have happened in the 21st century is there's a kind of localization, if you want, of, of issues so that um, we tend to identify much more with what happens to black lives in Ferguson or Minnesota much more than we are I, uh, likely to identify with the same issues happening, let's say, in South Africa which would not have been the case, let's say, in the 1980s. Whatever happened in South Africa would be connected to what was happening to us. Mm -hmm. um, so um, my own sense is that until we start seeing these issues in their global context, then there's a way in which questions of Liberia are going to just slip away. Um, and that's, that's a mistake because one of the things, again, we see in Mittman's book, the fact that Firestone till the 1950s would not employ black workers in its factory in Akron, Ohio. The same Jim Crow is now exported to Liberia because as far as the company is concerned, there's a kind of racial continuum and uh, for them, those boundaries don't matter. So by the same token, social movements have to understand that there's that continuum. It has always been there and it's going to continue to be there. So we can't just say that Firestone belongs to the past or that that's a Liberian problem. Uh, it's also a problem in many ways. I mentioned that Firestone has faded into the background for now. But after talking with a lot of people on campus, I'm not sure this topic is going to go away again. Last year, the entire editorial board of the campus newspaper, The Daily Princetonian, published an article entitled Confronting Systemic Racism Starts at Home, and it calls out Firestone by name. And then there's the Belknap Global Conversation series put on by the Humanities Council at Princeton. This was a series that a lot of people knew for bringing celebrities for lecture events. But a couple months ago, they brought out Greg Mittman to talk about his book. And of course, the Firestone Library came up. And even though he's already graduated, John Ort has kept working on his research. He's been looking in the archives of Princeton, and he's started to find some things. Um, and so the documentation shows that 
you know, through the 50s, 60s, 70s, Princeton, you know, would would routinely during this time come back to the Firestones and ask for funding for expansions and 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 continued support of the library. And the Firestones, you know, complied. One of the primary ways in which the Firestone supported and gave to Princeton entailed the transfer of common stock of the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company. Um, and Princeton's archives from this time period record dozens of such transfers. And you see it, it it's rather routine. Um, you know, at least once a year in, in the 60s and, and 70s, um, and sometimes more than more frequently than that, you see Harvey Firestone Jr. himself, who who took the helm of the company, personally writing to Princeton's president to uh, transfer stock of the company. Sometimes, you know, like um, 250000 to support a library expansion, sometimes for these more specific gifts. Um, but I think the upshot is that Princeton, over this time period, came in possession of a substantial amount of stock of the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company. Does, do, do we know if Princeton still has Firestone stock? We don't. Um, and, you know, this actually goes back to the very first op-ed I had written because I had asked the university's press office back in 2017 if they could comment on that or shed some light on what that's doing now. Mm -hmm. um, and they 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 declined to comment, right, cited, said they can't comment on university investments. Um, so we don't know. Do, do, you, do you think students should know? I do. I do think it's, uh, you know, we've been talking about what Princeton needs to do um, to be honest, at the very least, about its ties to Firestone and to rectify or to respond to its complicity, right? And I think that, you know, integral to that process, if, if, if Princeton's going to respond in a meaningful way, we need to know not only historically what's been true, but what's true today. Um, and I, I do think that this conversation, very, very much important to it is, is whether Princeton still holds that stock. How realistic do you think that is? I, my, I, I have to say my hopes are not high that, that Princeton would disclose this information. I think the, the historical record um, that I've been looking at has revealed a lot, but it's only a partial picture. It can only be a partial picture. And I think only, right, only the people who manage Princeton's endowment who have this holistic view of the institution Mm -hmm. will be able to provide a full account. John says there's a limit on what he can find out on his own, because the university has a 30-year moratorium on these records. That means, for example, that any records from the mid to late 90s during the Civil War, they're not public yet. So unless something changes, we won't have that full account. But what if we did? And this is where I ask the question that this podcast centers around. We'll start with Greg Mittman. Um, so this this history that you're talking about, what if everybody knew all of this? What if when we looked at a Firestone service center, what if every time somebody walked into the library and saw a Firestone up there, they had this knowledge in, in the back of their mind? How do you think things would change? Uh, I think, you know, some of the most egregious elements of the story are are the ways in which American science and medicine worked hand in hand with a corporation to advance racial inequality. And we see the kind of enduring effects of that today and the differential burdens in the context of, of, of COVID and communities of, of, of color in, in the United States and the ways in which health and racial inequalities continue to endure. Mm -hmm. 
you know, one of the things I say about in the book is that this is a history of America told through the lens of Firestone in Liberia. And I don't see the book as a history of Liberia. I don't think I am in a position to write that. And, you know, I think Americans don't understand how integral Liberia's history is to the history of the United States. Right. And right. If we understand, if, you know, as we're engaged in this historical understanding of racism in America, as we see in the 1619 Project and so forth, Liberia is an important part of that story. Right. And, and in many ways, I think if everybody knew, that would be um, a really welcome sign, right? Because I, I don't think we're there yet, even though I think awareness among the Princeton community is growing. Mm-hmm. You know, most of the time when I was a Princeton student, I wasn't thinking that way. But if we had that kind of critical, unflinching knowledge, who built that wealth, where it really originated, um, and the true history that's belied by this beautiful library, it would transform how and who we are as members of the Princeton community. I think we would better understand what we're called to do today, and we'd better understand what our institution is called to do. I think the question of how people would react if they knew this history, uh, it's always very complicated. And it's complicated because I don't think the central problem is lack of knowledge or ignorance. Uh, in a sense, um, not everyone knows, but there are enough people who know. There are people who know about this connection and have known about this connection, but they did not want to do anything about it precisely because of the way philanthropy and the university and corporations work. One can't ignore that fact that there is a way in which universities spend a lot of time courting corporations for mm-hmm. money. We're talking about the administration here. The, the university, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the university, the administration, um, the people charged with running the university, they, they do feel, when you talk to them, a kind of obligation to to raise money because as they remind us, that's what enables the university to be a great university. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, my suspicion always is that there are certain things you don't want to disturb, to change, but uh, it has to do with the fact, again, that at one point, Firestone or Wilson were seen as people who occupied the moral center of Princeton. Mm-hmm. So what do you do when the people who occupy your moral center have been dis- disgraced or have been proven to be unworthy of that. <laughs> um, it's it's a question then of, again, a kind of intellectual repair. You have to repair that damage. And I'm not sure how you do it, but you have to accept the damage uh, first before you talk about the re- repair to be done. So what, what does that repair look like then? I tend to favor small steps first. Um, and the first the first step is to accept responsibility instead of saying we, we, were, we didn't know. And then the second step is to actually do something fairly straightforward. And that is, since we are a university, the most important and direct link we can make 
is with Liberian universities or institutions of higher learning. One thing that actually obvious is how many how many postdocs can we offer, or even scholarships can we offer to Liberian students to come and study at Princeton, and hopefully go back to uh, Liberian institutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we can move in, move it a step further and ask, what kinds of collaborative networks can we build with Liberian institutions to help them return to where they were? Because many of them were destroyed during the Civil War. So this is something that I think, I mean, it's it's kind of the elephant in the room, though, right? Which is the name, the name Firestone. Do you think a name change would be something that would be appropriate? Name changes are very important. Don't misunderstand me. Um, Name changes are important precisely because of the symbolism and also because of the the, the connotations. What what does Firestone mean? When we call a building that's so important, the University of Firestone. Mm -hmm. But equally important in my perspective is also the need to have reminders about that history because sometimes when we change the name, we also erase, as it were, the bad history so that it's no longer represented. If you change the name, what are you going to do to also make sure that the history is not lost? We have a library built on money that was made from the exploitation of African workers. <laughs> so uh, that's it. It's fairly straightforward. I mean, we can debate how to position it but to me, the context, the description is obvious, mm-hmm. but it's always missing, of course. So it's trying to balance, on one hand, the need to change names so that we are not continuously reminded and maybe traumatized by that history, mm-hmm. while at the same time reminding us that that history did exist. One last thing. We've heard from a few people in this episode people who've only visited Princeton, a former Princeton student, and a Princeton professor. But there's a group that we've been talking about that hasn't been heard in this episode. Librarians themselves. What do they think should be done about the library? But then again, which librarians would we ask? The descendants of the workers? Liberian politicians? Liberian historians? I've thought about this a lot. And there's something that Greg Mittman said that kind of hit me that his book isn't about Liberia, it's about America. And I think that applies here too, to the questions that Princeton should be asking not other people, but asking itself. It's not that Princeton isn't saying anything about Firestone, it is. Just like those old PR documentaries, the name on the outside of the library does tell a story, part of one. And as an institution, that's a story that Princeton has chosen to believe. How long that continues, isn't really up to Liberians. It's up to Princeton. Thank you so much for listening to the second episode of If Everybody Knew. I hope you dug it. This episode couldn't have happened without the participation of Greg Mittman, Simon Gakandi, and John Ort. That being said, the framing and editorializing and everything else in this episode, that's my own. So if you're curious to know more, you should definitely go to the source and please check out the show notes at humanities.princeton.edu podcast. 
You can find a full transcript, plus links to the books, documentaries, and everything referenced in here, plus some places you can read further. This episode was also inspired by a live discussion hosted by the Humanities Council as part of the Belknap Global Conversation series between Greg Mittman and Simon Gakandi from back in November. And the video of that is available online also. And speaking of videos, in addition to the book, Greg Mittman has also produced a documentary in Liberia. And that would be one place that you would be able to hear Liberians speaking directly about the legacy of Firestone in their country. Also, I mentioned that John is still doing research. He was telling me that he's working on an article that goes way more into detail than his previous ones. There's a lot of stuff he's uncovered, so when he publishes it, I'll be sure to update the show notes with a link. And again, you can find all that at humanities.princeton.edu slash podcast. Anyway, that's it from me. If Everybody Knew is produced with music composed by and hosted by me, Dexter Thomas. Catch y'all next time. If Everybody Knew is brought to you by the Humanities Council at Princeton University. Our mission is to nurture the humanities locally and globally, engage diverse perspectives past and present, and enrich public dialogue with humanistic approaches. For information about our programs and events, please visit our website at humanities.princeton.edu.